It is hard to make sense of everything that is happening across the world today. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you are not a subscriber, you can join us at theregistrysf.com. Hi, everyone. This is Vladimir Bosanets. I'm the co-founder and publisher of The Registry. Thank you for joining us on the Real Perspectives podcast, where we bring professionals from the commercial real estate industry to talk about the market, what is happening, and how it continues to evolve in these trying times. Uh, before we get to our guest of honor today, Julie Taylor, uh, who is Executive Vice President at Colliers in San Francisco and one of the top retail brokers in the industry, I wanted to turn to a few interesting news items that we've seen over the last few weeks. And I wanted to share them with you because um, it's something that uh, we've identified and maybe you can give us some feedback and let us know if you are seeing something similar or if this is totally off or maybe we're somewhere in the ballpark. But my hope is to um, provide these introductions and perspectives um, briefly before we start with our interviews and um, really hope that you guys will um, be part of it and give us give us some feedback. So some of the things um, that I think all of you would agree is that uh, commercial office space activity uh, is pretty much come to a crawl. Um, everything seems to be on hold. There are basically a couple of smaller deals happening here or there. There are a couple of bigger deals happening also. There was recently a, a, a published release from Heinz uh, saying that Microsoft took over half a million square feet in one of their Atlanta offices. Uh, there was a bit of a departure um, in, in a way for Microsoft, um, you know, taking so much space in a market where um, they haven't dominated as much as maybe they have in some other markets. It is an interesting move. Um, but other than sort of big kind of national news items like that, in uh, the Bay Area and in the Seattle markets where, where we covered the industry, um, everything that we're hearing is that it is still pretty slow. Um, one of the things that we've we've identified in, in our writing and uh, speaking with um, some architecture firms that is very interesting is that there's been a lot of investment made by various companies in an infrastructure for you know to enable their employees to work from home. And it doesn't seem like any of those companies are interested in giving up that infrastructure. So what that means in the future, I think will be very interesting. And I think it's something to watch um, because if um, the employees are afraid to go back to work, if they are unable to work from home, if uh, they don't feel like they need to go to the office and if companies feel like 80%, 90%, uh, or in some cases, even 100% of, of their work can be done from um, from, <laughs> from a closet or from a home office. Uh, my sense is that that trend uh, will probably stay. Uh, how much of it ends up being um, really part of the market, I, I don't know. But I think it's unrealistic to also assume that it's all going to go back to the way it was in 2019. I, I, I don't see that. I have noticed um, a number of um, 
industries, associations, um, and even some companies, uh, some architecture firms who are touting uh, research and some observations that they've had that a very small number of people wants to work from home. And, and, and that strikes me a little bit um, done in, in self-interest. Uh, I don't know, you know if anyone can predict where exactly we're going to land. But again, um, given the investment in this infrastructure, I, I don't think it's going to just go away. And um, that seems to jibe with some of the other feedback that we've heard, uh, which is around uh, returning to the office is going to take a lot longer and companies are not going to rush their people back into the offices um, at, at any point soon, um, especially if it becomes uh, a you know recruiting tool or, or potentially a way to start losing valuable employees. So we'll obviously keep watching that um, and see how that evolves. I think um, this is not going to get resolved over the next couple of months. I think it'll be one of those things where probably some companies will have uh, some stricter rules and regulations. Others will have less stricter rules and regulations. And what will happen, we, we don't know, uh, but certainly it's, uh, it's a trend that uh, needs to be observed. We welcome today Julie Taylor, Executive Vice President at Colliers International in San Francisco and one of the top and most prolific retail brokers in the Bay Area and beyond. We sat down with Julie to ask questions about retail and learn perhaps things we didn't want to learn, but nevertheless had to hear about how the post-pandemic retail landscape is going to shape up. Some of it is downright scary, but at the same time, there is always hope and room for something new and innovative to happen. So without further ado, here's Julie Taylor. Julie, how are you? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing great. How are things going? Um, how has the world at, uh, at, at the retail world at Collier's changed over the last uh, couple of months? I imagine there's been uh, quite a bit of uh, transformation going on? Yes. Um, there's been a lot of, of uh, transformation. And I've been in this industry for 30 years, and I've never seen anything like this. Um, so I've been through a number of downturns, but this is rather unprecedented. Before we were all told to shelter in place, let's say go back to February, the market really seemed to be improving. Um, touring activity had increased. And I felt there was a sense that we were reaching equilibrium with landlords and tenants coming together. And I was very optimistic about the year. Um, yeah. And that's changed. It's changed. It's been uh, quite a roller coaster. Yeah. So, Julie, uh, just uh, as way of background, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your role at Collier's, uh, your team at Collier's and sort of where your, you know, coverage is in the industry. I lead a team of 10 professionals in the San Francisco office, and we have coverage across a number of different product types. So we, we represent shopping centers, lifestyle centers, regional malls, and the neighborhood streets in San Francisco, Union Square Financial District. Basically, we work the city and the surrounding Bay areas. And then, um, you know, we're part of a much larger team of about, um, 80 agents in California and 550 or so across the country. 
but all we do is retail. You know, I'm only speaking of the retail group. Yeah, and can you give us maybe a sense of where 2019 was in terms of all those different product types that, that you mentioned just a second ago and kind of how the year was evolving and then based on what you were seeing at the end of 2019, how you were looking at 2020, you know, back in December of last year? What's been very um, interesting is how the market has been so segmented amongst the different product types. You know, we all work together and sit close to one another and share what's going on. And it's amazing how, um, you know, certain neighborhoods are doing fine and others are, um, you know, riddled with vacancies and the financial district's quite healthy, but but Union Square has uh, really had a tough couple of years. Um, so there's been a lot of disparity in in um, I'd say the the functionality and the demand for uh, the different types of retail that we work on, and and that would be you know probably its own podcast, honestly, to talk about all of those different market segments. Um, but they're basically there. There's been Quite a bit of vacancy across the board, yeah. but some some areas have still been healthy, and other areas have been more impacted. And then as we as we go into this this new environment, this new economy, this you know new reality, basically it's almost like you 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 take the bar down several pegs for all product types, um, but but certain will be certain areas are going to be more vulnerable um, than others. Yeah, certainly, and I don't want to focus the entire podcast on the on the negative kind of consequences of of what's happening, but I do want to address that a little bit, and you know maybe you can give us uh, some idea, maybe even some anecdotes around kind of what what is really happening. It, it it'd be great to kind of hear from from you as really an expert in this in this space how uh, it's evolving, not just in uh, in San Francisco, but also throughout throughout the region as well. So what I, what I can share with you is, is obviously retailers of all types are really, really suffering. And the, the only stores or tenants that are, you know, managing through this process are frankly grocery stores and then to a smaller degree, hardware stores and drug stores. But ev even they are struggling because of the operational challenges of having to have your customers line up around the block and only a certain number of people can be admitted um, into the store at a time and then trying to keep stock on shelves. So all retail and product types and all retail shopping centers and street fronts are, are being negatively impacted, but all retailers are being negatively impacted, um, but, but some much more than others. Are you noticing uh, retailers also trying to adapt quickly? So creating their own delivery systems and networks, uh, hiring people that maybe they weren't you know, working inside the store anymore, now they're working on deliveries. Are you noticing any trends like that that are that are also coming out of this uh, whole situation? We've seen a ton of adaptation. I mean, some restaurants are 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 selling produce. Uh, you know, the, the 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 produce and the and the meat and so forth that they were going to turn into meals, they're now selling as groceries. Liquor stores are selling alcohol to go. Uh, yoga instructors, instead of um, holding their classes in their physical space, are are holding Zoom classes. And of course, you know, everybody is is running their business online. 
Um, so there's been a, a very fast and furious um, attempt to adapt, but it's important to keep in mind that adapting means that maybe you're doing 30% of the business that you used to. It allows people to uh, retain key employees, maybe pay a token amount of rent, but it, it does not allow them to, to function, of course, as they used to. Are you noticing also uh, that some retailers in certain parts of the Bay Area are, are, are faring better? So I imagine, you know, in the suburbs, maybe things are in a certain degree could be a little bit better than maybe in the city, or maybe it's maybe it's vice versa. Vice versa. Maybe that's counter counterintuitive. Any thoughts about that? Um, that's an interesting question. And of course, sheltering in place, I'm not spending as much time in the city, though I've gone in a few times and of course been quite astounded about, you know, as to how many, how, how few people I see on the streets um, and all the shuttered businesses and so forth. I think they're probably faring better in, this, in the suburbs because um, more people depend on their cars in the suburbs and you have this feeling of isolation and protection, you know, as you drive up to a business and grab your to-go food and, you know, I can get all around, I can cast my um, dollars across a wider area. Whereas in the city, you know, you, I guess you, if you're on foot, you can only go so far. But I would imagine Uber Eats is probably doing a booming business and, and delivering food all over the place. But I would think everybody wants to, to, to stay away from transit now. So any businesses that depended on transit either to get their employees to their door or to get their customers to their door would, would certainly be very, very impacted now. Yeah. So on a short term to medium term kind of basis, how do you see things playing out? Um, I think that there's going to be a tremendous amount of adaptation and this whole process is very Darwinian. There, there were changes occurring in retail before, but the changes that are occurring now are just so much more accelerated you know i i think that the that what we're seeing happen today and over the next 12 to 18 months would have otherwise taken probably five years you know for this evolution to to occur so the strong retailers are going to get a lot stronger and are frankly going to pick up the market share of the weak ones who don't survive through this. And that, um, whether it's restaurants or service providers or um, you know traditional retailers, you know the, there are going to be a lot of businesses that don't come through this because they don't have the the, the capital um, to to allow them to survive through this gap in revenue. Um, but those that are able to survive are going to are going to do exceedingly well going forward. The, the, the retailers are also making a lot of changes to the way they operate their business, um, not just uh, the examples I mentioned a few moments ago, but thinking about their supply chains. You know, we, we merchants used to depend on, on, on just-in-time inventory and, and hyper-efficiency um, and, and were very dependent upon a global system. And when pressure is put on that system, it breaks. And people now realize that, you know, maybe they need to, you know, work through multiple factories on different continents to avoid um, geopolitical problems or tariffs or trade wars. Um, I think people are going to be much more, they're going to be thinking about how to operate in a universe, in a world that is much, much less dependable because we will have been something so through something as dramatic as 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 
this COVID event. Yeah, and that certainly will, I think, play itself out. I've uh, I've also heard uh, some opinion from people that our reliability on kind of a global supply uh, chain will probably diminish, meaning that Canada and Mexico maybe become more important partners because um, we'll just have to rely on our sort of geography more so than perhaps we have in the past. Going back to your other point about adaptability and kind of the pace of, of, of that, do you anticipate a retailer that does not have a web presence or does not have a, have a sort of log- logistical capability to, you know, deliver stuff through the internet, will, will, will they survive? Is, is that even going to be possible going forward? I think it's going to be very difficult unless, you know, they're a local boutique with just a ton of foot traffic and, you know, they only serve those in their immediate community. I think that omni-channel is, you know, is, is, is the way to protect oneself um, from these events. And, it's, you know, it's not just a pandemic. I mean, last year we had we had a month of fires where people didn't want to be on the streets and there was ash falling from the sky and PG&E shutdowns. And it was very difficult to go out and unpleasant to go out. Uh, There are a lot of things that can cause one to prefer to shop online. And, And actually San Francisco has one of the highest rates of online consumption already in the country, you know, so, so it, you know, the, the Bay area is, is the, the seat of technology for the world. You know, I think that, this is this is a place where absolutely everybody should be leveraging their online opportunity yeah. for multiple reasons. Yeah, right. And have you seen that before this crisis began? Did your colleagues from around the country and around the world sort of look at Northern California as a as a primer on what might be evolving in the retail space? I wouldn't say so, honestly, because I mean, I yes and no. Yes, in that San Francisco has a lot of digital native brands who have opened their stores here either first or early in their desire for physical retail, you know, so, so in, in that way, yes, that I, that I've, I've seen that occur, but the, I will say the more traditional merchants uh, haven't, you know, made some amazing push to online because, it's the Bay Area, <laughs> right? Uh, I, I'd say no. <laughs> right, right, um, and and that made I think that comment that you just made might be obvious to you and me why you made that comment, but but I I think the the point of of that is if I'm not mistaken, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Julie, but I think the point of that is that. Uh, some of the some of those merchants that are you know maybe global names and brands and that kind of thing don't necessarily look at San Francisco as a place of sort of that kind of innovation those kinds of trends correct L- less so than perhaps in uh, in the way that they're seen as a technological sort of innovator is that is that accurate I think so and it's also frankly a lot of retailers look at the Bay Area as an, a place that's incredibly difficult to do business it's very um, expense the real estate's expensive the labor's expensive there's a ton more regulation so we don't usually hear people getting excited like yeah i want to come to the bay area because customer consumers here are a little bit more um ahead of the curve in a, in a lot of the ways that they think and, and approach shopping it's more like 
it's a pain in the neck, you know, <laughs> and, and, and my store is less profitable here. So, uh, you know, um, but, but at the same time, they realize how important it is to be here because of the density of population and the affluence and the education and the disposable income and all that stuff. So, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So San Francisco has its, uh, f- you know, formula retail law, which is, uh, you know, prohibitive. And how do you, do you think the city might loosen that? Do you think it might be kind of some thinking around or rethinking around whether that's, you know, the right approach from now on? I could make a long list of the things that the city needs to do to help us get back on track. But we're going to, we're going to come out of this with, with more vacancy, unfortunately, because there are businesses that won't be able to turn their lights back on yeah. when we're, when we're done. And in the meanwhile, you know, so in the meantime, the city makes it incredibly difficult for even non-formula retailers to open here. The permit process is extremely slow um, conditional use approvals are, are required in many places, you know, because your use might not be specific to that space, even though you're not formula retail. It's it's incredibly difficult to do business here. I, um, I actually had a, a tenant just a few months ago that wanted to do a pop-up, a one-year pop-up, and they tallied up all of the, the fees applications, expenses, it would be to open up this business. And mind you, this was like a 1200 square foot space, but $67,000 of, of fees. And they just said no. And, and I, and this is a location where the landlord was willing to take 70% less than the asking rent just to have this pop up in for a year to create foot traffic. And the rent that the landlord would have gotten was almost the exact same number that the city would have gotten for the fees. And the deal couldn't come together because the fees were too burdensome. And and when I when I look at that and and I, you know, I see the condition of the streets and we have a lot more crime today than we did 10 years ago. And and the streets don't feel safe and they certainly don't look clean. And yet the city makes it difficult for those um, businesses with a desire to open to do so affordably. It's, it's a really unfair situation. And, and I'm, I'm desperately hoping that the city of San Francisco will make the changes that are going to be necessary to, to repopulate these vacant spaces because there, there are just too many hurdles and, and we don't need to make it harder. We need to make it easier. Yeah, no, that's, that, that makes sense. When you talk to landlords, um, how are they weathering the storm? What are, what are their you know, concerns about their properties and their assets? What are some anecdotes that you can share from that experience? Well, both landlords and tenants are having a really hard time. You know, the, the landlords come in several different categories. You know, there's a, there's a, the, the family owner of a property that's had it for a couple generations, you know, a San Francisco native owner. There's institutional owners that, that own bigger properties downtown. Um, that might, you would think, have deeper pockets, but they also have companies of employees and they have debt and so forth. So their their landlords are have been, I think, quite generous for um, you know for the month of April, based upon everything I've heard. But their ability to just sort of you know except no income doesn't work right, you know sometimes right. people sometimes people are living off of this income sometimes 
they they have they have debt service, building repairs to be made, and so forth. And and based the message I would put out there is that everybody needs to work together. You know, the retailers are suffering, the landlords are suffering too. And unless everybody's willing to cooperate, maybe the retailer pays a little bit of rent and the landlord accepts just a little, you know, but, but you know, that, that works a lot better than the retailer saying, no, I'm just not going to pay you for six months or whatever, or, or the landlord requiring that the tenant pay rent when they can't. So there, there just has to be a lot of give and take and cooperation. And, and while it's time consuming, you know, every, every situation has to be evaluated independently because this is, you know, the, the, the same solution for one building or one tenant is not going to work for another. Yeah. And do you converse? We're spending a lot of time on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and it's probably time well spent because, uh, <laughs> right, it'll it'll probably help cause um, issues down the line. But but one of the reasons I asked that was because, as you were saying, there will be a lot of retailers who are not going to make it through the end of this cycle. I, I suspect there's probably going to be a number of landlords that might go through a similar process too. And I was just trying to gauge sort of how um, how deep and how worried some of those landlords are as well. Um, some of them are very worried. I mean, it's we're early in it, right? We don't know how long this is going to go. We don't know, you know, are we going to have a second wave in in, in in the winter and have to shut down again. But um, yeah, landlords are definitely worried. Those with a lot of debt service have cause for concern. And, you know, it's all ultimately a domino effect. And then there's conversations with the lender. Is the lender willing to restructure these loans or not? But I would not be surprised to see, you know, some distressed sales a year from now. Um, right, or even sooner, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I I don't want to focus just on the negative. Um, I think it's it's <laughs> always I I think that's a, that's very easy to do now, but I think it's always um, important to look at you know how this is transforming the industry and what this means for the future, whether it's. 24 months from now, whether it's, you know, further down the line, are there some things um, that you see today that are beginning to happen that, that, that will be positive um, sort of consequences of, of what we're going through today? Sure. So we've talked about how uh, people are going to be um, more prepared to adapt. Uh, retailers will be more prepared to adapt. Retailers are going to be more careful about diversifying their supply chain so that they have they can be nimble if they need to be um, I think also what will come out of this is there will be more of an alignment between consumption and rent and and this will be really our biggest silver lining and what I mean by that is the rent paid for a space should be a function of the revenue that can be generated within those four walls. And for a long time, certain parts of the city have kind of heated up and, and, and we, we were, we were um, seeing a lot of rent growth that was really fueled more by demand than it was sound underwriting. Um, when that demand diminished, we ended up with more supply, you know, and that's what happened a right, few years ago. Right. Um, and, and, and as I said earlier in the call, I was just starting to see momentum and, and see the market come into balance. This will still occur, but 
the um, the economics will look different. And I and I think that the retailers are going to be very focused on structuring deals that allow them to you know maybe they have a lower base rate and they're giving percentage rent to the landlord if they do better than they anticipated. Maybe the terms are shorter, so landlord and tenant are, are not tied to a relationship that isn't beneficial for either one of them. Um, I think there'll be more fluidity over, over the way that deals are structured, and ultimately that's going to make for much healthier streets and much, much healthier merchants, and landlords will be able to more readily make changes, um, you know, in, in their building when, when something isn't going right, you know, when a tenant's not doing as well as, as they thought they would. And I see that as a positive. Um, and and it's, it's, it will be a considerable change from how things were done historically with, with very long terms and longer commitments. But those, those, those terms requ- required people to forecast that everything was going to stay the same right. or just get better. Right. right. And we've learned nothing stays the same and it might get better or it might just become different and that different might not suit, you know, whoever, whoever signed the lease. So I think, I think that will be the, the most positive change. And, and hopefully that will allow people, you know, I know that if, if people are willing to adopt that concept, it will allow spaces to be filled more readily. Yeah. What becomes difficult is because, you know, lenders love long-term leases and lenders love, you know, credit signatures on long-term leases. And frankly, if anything, we've I've learned through this um, is, is credit doesn't necessarily mean anything because there are a whole lot of credit tenants not paying their rent right now. <laughs> um, and, and, that's kind of unprecedented. Yeah, I've I've heard somebody make that point actually how on on the day where apparently credit was supposed to mean everything, right? It it means nothing almost and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a big big lesson also. Are there any anecdotes of uh, certain retailers and companies that, you know, you've heard of and seen whether it's in this country or some somewhere else that are really doing some interesting stuff that maybe made you think about like, wow, that was a very creative and quick way of adapting. Something you can share on along those those lines? Not so much with respect to a deal structure, but um, we've been communicating quite a bit with our, our office in Shanghai and they've been telling us about you know how things are getting back to normal and what we what we will experience is what they're experiencing now is it's a it's a gradual process and it it will take time for things to get back to normal but you know every every week every month will be better so so sales are growing the foot traffic's growing you know and and it, it will just take time but they are absolutely, you know, operating gyms and restaurants and their malls are open and so forth. And, you know, people are all masked up and cleaning everything a lot. But, but there is a way to get through it. And, you know, eventually we'll have a vaccine and then we won't have to worry so much. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I think that's the goalpost. You know, once we get that achieved, achieved and we're all inoculated, then, then we really can get happily crowded again in bars and <laughs> restaurants right. and so forth. Right. Um, <laughs> are they talking to you about certain examples of um, how these retailers and, you know, restaurants and other places are 
you know, limiting social contacting? Are, are there any, you know, case studies ar- around that as well? And and the reason I ask that, because I think that's that's an important aspect of it. I don't think we can just go back to what we did in December or November of last year right. in terms of how right. we did it. But in China, you know, from my understanding, you also have, you know, a, you know, very focused country on, you know, testing and everybody's got suits and, you know, you land and everybody's sort of tested. You know, it, it's, it's just a different level of kind of, urgency than than perhaps we have so but i am wondering um you know how the physical space is also changing that is enabling them to now open things up and and change things um maybe a little bit quicker than than anticipated oh sure um so i've got a, a few anecdotes i can share the restaurants are operating but they are restricting parties to four people so you can only have four people you can't have eight you can't have you know a big party with 10 or 12. Um, there's more space between tables you know, no, no, uh, um, I'll say uh, sort of you know, plastic or vinyl menus, right? They want paper, pen, paper menus that are disposed after you touch them. Just more protocol about, you know, what, what you, where you sit and, and, and how you space yourselves in, inside of a restaurant. Gyms are operating, but they're operating on kind of a shift basis. So instead of a whole bunch of people all just charging in there at seven in the morning or at six in the evening after work, they're staggering usage and that's allowing them to control the numbers that are allowed in the gym. And then when that rotation is done with their workout, everybody leaves, they clean it, and then the next group can come in. So people are literally signing up for their workouts so that they'll have their time in a space that's been prepared for them. A little bit cumbersome, but it's a workaround, right? It allows the business to at least get off the ground again, and they're not going to be at 100% of the the revenue that they generated, but they can take the, the right steps in that direction. We've learned that the stores on the streets are busier and doing more volume than the stores inside of malls. There's a lot more caution about being inside of a mall where the air is the, the air is recirculated and you and you're not able as able as easily to di- divert you know yourself from crowds and so forth. So um, I think that's actually good news for the street front retail in the city. You know, you, you can walk to what you care about and then just leave and, and not be um, sort of forced through a, a, a footfall or foot traffic pattern that you, you that you don't want to be part of. We've also heard there's all been a ton of um, revenge shopping or just, you know, people who when they first got let out, they, they're all just like, they're overjoyed and, and rewarding themselves for uh, for months of being locked up and you know maybe spending more than they would have otherwise because they're just so happy to be out shopping and going to restaurants and so forth so that is a very good indicator of, of some positive news that, that uh, should unfold yeah yeah too. I, I think we should end on that positive news, Julie, because everything else is uh, going to be difficult to overcome. So thank you very much for your time. Um, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, stay safe and stay well. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.